I'm Julie Swenson, Managing Director of Forward Theatre Company in Madison, Wisconsin. And I'm Mike Fisher, Milwaukee-based theatre writer and dramaturg. I'm Jen Upoff-Gray, Founder and Artistic Director of Forward Theatre Company, and this is Theatre Forward, a twice-monthly conversation about theatre from a local, regional, and national perspective. From Madison to Manhattan, we're excited to share insight into our own company while exploring issues surrounding theatre in the Midwest and around the country. Welcome to episode 43 of Theatre Forward. Good to be here. Good to be back. This week's conversation is about political plays. With the presidential election just around the corner, we thought this would be a good time to talk about some of our favorite plays dealing with politics. And Nightmare maybe we'll on even Elm get, Street. Yeah, exactly, thank you. <laughs> maybe we'll even get into some of the considerations that go into deciding to produce a political play as well. Um, but for now, why don't we just kick off with with some of those political plays that just really, you know, get our brains and hearts excited? Um, Mike, why don't you kick us off? What's one of your faves? Well, this is I, this is such an obvious choice, but it's such an important play to me. I will I will stake an even greater claim for it. Henry IV, both parts. Uh, the greater claim I will I will stake for, and I've got good company here. I do think it's the uh, I'll use Ken Tynan's words from uh, 1955. It's the twin summits of Shakespeare's achievement. Uh, Michael Billington, who saw what like 4,000 plays while reviewing at the Guardian, said, "If I had one night to see one more show um, in my lifetime, it would be the two parts of Henry the Fourth." Wow. Um, I, I and I you know I love Hamlet. I love Lear. I love lots of the other plays. This for me is the it uh, it. Moment for for Shakespeare, and it's political in both the personal and the political sense. I mean, it's obviously a, a nation, uh, state of the nation play, um, but it also takes those issues about the way in which the centrifugal forces are pulling a country apart, and in asking what a nation is going to be, manages to talk about it in terms of family as well as state, which I think is just so wonderful and 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 so great. I will also say because I think this will drop this podcast before uh, before the end of what I'm about to talk about, uh, you know, Felita Lloyd, um, you know, really reshaped the way we think about Shakespeare in doing the Shakespeare trilogy with all women casts uh, starting about 10 years ago. Uh, those were originally at the Don Mark. They came over to St. Anne's and St. Anne's is rebroadcasting all three of them for free. Uh, Henry IV is the middle one. That's up right now as we record, but there will be a trilogy marathon weekend um, at the end of October during which you can stream and watch all three and they are amazing. So I'm going to highly recommend that for people whose appetite has been whetted by, by my words. Mike, I want to jump on because I thought that the two of you would just do all modern um, edgy, uh, you know, kind of gray um, politics. So much, so there. much of what there. we're seeing right now um, <laughs> is, is arguments on both sides. And it, my immediate play was A Man for All Seasons by <laughs> And the idea of uh, uh, a person who will stay true to his convictions, even up to the point of execution. And it's political, obviously, because of um, the argument of Henry VIII and Sir Thomas More, and Sir Thomas More not agreeing to publicly um, condone the um, annulment um, of Catherine of Aragon so that uh, Henry VIII can marry Anne Boleyn. And a whole church was created <laughs> due to this, uh, uh, you know, the English, the English church. Um, so, Maybe I'm fudging the politics a little bit, but I love the idea 
of of Sir Thomas More, who stayed stalwart to his his heart and his mind. And we need more of that behavior in this world right now. Oh my God, Julie, I feel like you've teed me up personally because I, I have a whole list of, you know, sort of contemporary American political plays that are my favorites. But if we're going to start with the, the older European plays, um, I, think, I think I can go to the dark gray area that you were talking about because probably my favorite European play about politics is Brecht's Fear and Misery of the Third Reich. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which right. is um, pretty incredible reading. And it's just, it's a series of vignettes, interrelated vignettes about what it's like being a citizen in Germany during the rise of the Third Reich. And it's only recently that I realized that my longtime love for that particular piece of theater may have um, sort of set me up for my love of uh, a relationship that we've had with um, these writers who came out of the neo-futurists in Chicago back in 2012, Forward produced um, one of a series of nationwide productions of their play, 44 Plays for 44 Presidents, which was a series of 44 very short little plays, one about each presidency, and some were musicals and some were interpretive dance and others were comedy routines and others were really tragic and some were songs. And um, it it was really... uh, that's one of my favorite political experiences as a director. And then, of course, you know, this week in the alternate universe in which COVID didn't happen is the week uh, in which we would have started rehearsals for our joint world premiere of their new play, 45 Plays for America's First Ladies. Um, we are still doing committed to doing that play this season. We've pushed it up to May of 2021 so that we can hopefully do it live on stage. Maybe if we're lucky, it'll be 46 plays for America's first ladies by then. Um, but that, so I just, I started in, you know, the early 20th century and I brought us screaming into, uh, into the, the current day right there. But um, yeah, I think, I, I think you can count on Brecht to be as sort of, you know, dark and stormy a, a political story as we could get. Absolutely. <laughs> well, you you totally teed me up, Jen. Because <laughs> this is how this now, goes. Now I understand where some of the darkness maybe came from on a production you worked on, which was the cabaret uh, with uh, with Sam Mendes Cabaret in New York. Um, I have a twin pairing. I will say very little about each show so I can cheat this way. But two of the musicals, because boy, am I still itching that I didn't get a musical into our last podcast. Sure, two sure. musicals, which I think in very different ways captures something about the aesthetic dynamic of fascism and how it works, our cabaret, and wait for it, Evita. Probably the first mm. musical that I could sing oh. through in the shower from start to finish. I'm thinking of Evita because of 45's lovely sort of uh, uh, Ava Perone moment on the balcony as he waved and took his mask off coming back from the hospital, but I digress. Um, I think both of these plays, even in terms of the music, I mean, the music in Evita is schlock. It just is. But I, but it, it, I mean, it's schlock the way Abba is schlock. But I love Mamma Mia and I love Evita. And and it's there's something about those songs that hooks you, and something about uh, Evita in particular, which I saw with Patty Lapone as a high school kid, um, that is terrifying in the way in which you feel yourself watching somebody with that power get sucked in even though you know that everything she stands for is wrong. And that's what both Alan Cumming and Joel Gray do, do to me when I watch Cabaret. It's, it's creepy to feel how much power I can see them exercising 
over me. And it, and it, it allows me as somebody who is not living in that moment to get a little bit of a sense of what it must have been like and how hard it would be to resist um, those, those very dark impulses. You know, Mike, without going too far back, it's interesting looking at these plays, um, what still resonates and what is still accurate to our time and, and not, a, not a period piece. And um, I think of uh, Top Girls by Karen Churchill. Yep. And, um, you know, a woman in the 70s, 80s, uh, you know, women getting back into the um, workforce, this idea that women can have it all um, and Karen Churchill turns that on her head, and um, there are sacrifices to be made um, that the middle class is is harder to get to. Um, you know, the, the amount of opportunities that some people get that others don't. Um, I did think when when Renaissance Theater Works did that a couple years ago, um, with the well, I won't even mention the the cast because they're everyone Great of them cast. genius. Agreed. Um, that I, I thought that it would be a relic and um, that we're sort of past, past the, the, um, uh, the women, women in the workforce, women against women, um, either supporting or not supporting, that it was, that was a timepiece and it's not. It's, it's as relevant now as it was when Carol Churchill wrote it. You know, thinking about my favorite political plays, getting ready to record this episode, um, really sent me back to my years as a high school student, which was, I think, sort of that formative time when I was exploring two potential paths for myself. You know, was I going to pursue theater or was I going to pursue a career in, in law and politics? Because that was a very deep desire for me. And um, one of the formative uh plays that I read during that time, and it really could have sent me off in either direction, was Inherit the Wind. Oh, yeah. I was so in love with that play. I wanted to be the crusading attorney, you know, and it's, there's no question that something like that, if I were to sit down like right now and reread it, I'm sure that there would be quite a few things in it that would horrify me from my, you know, 2020 perspective, if I with my 2020 vision. Um, <laughs> This year being so horrible, it has just really deprived us of the opportunity to spend the year making 2020 vision jokes, which is really a shame. But um, <laughs> but that play, I mean, it really did sort of in the way Atticus Finch inspired so many people. It just really got me feeling so passionately about how you could theatrically stand up and fight for a better society the way those characters did. I'm like, gosh, I just love that play. Uh, you know, a, a, an American play, and it's another musical, an American play that captures for me something of the same spirit, um, which is, you know, uh, Lynn manuel Miranda has paid his debt to many times uh, vocally, is, is 1776, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, we're recording this the morning after the West Wing uh, reunion um, episode dropped, uh, which reminds us what it's like to have television and a world in which consensus is actually possible. And what's beautiful about 1776, in addition to some of the ravishing um, uh, music, is the idea that people from very, very disparate backgrounds, 
nevertheless, we're able to come together and make this document. It was imperfect. Um, it involved compromises uh, about the way in which we think about and treat certain human beings, which I think the show is alive to, probably would be more alive to now than it was when it was written. Um, but it's got this weird, unfair sort of nostalgic uh, haze that surrounds it. And that's not true to the vitality of the show. For me, one of the best nights in theater still that I have ever had was when Milwaukee Opera Theater gave us a one-night rendition of 1776 um, with a, just a, a, an amazing cast of, uh, of Milwaukee-based actors, uh, including uh, actors who have been on stage here at Forward, people like our own um, advisory company member, Raina Roman, um, who played John Hancock, and Matt Daniels, who absolutely killed as John Adams. I mean, it was, for me still, and I've seen Maddie do a lot of great work, the best thing I've ever seen him do. Mike Fisher, I can't let you talk about 1776. <laughs> while I look at this screen without thinking about, I mean, I think you're right that it's a play that's unfairly sort of consigned to the dustbin as being sort of creaky, but um, the opportunities for fresh casting provide so much opportunity to, um, to re-examine that play and what it talks about through a new lens. I had a couple of years ago, the privilege of directing a production of that show for Four Seasons Theater here in Madison and our own Scott Hayden here on the screen and his beautiful and talented wife, Claire Hayden, played John and Abigail Adams, but with the gender reversed. Oh, wow, I didn't and know that. And they were, both of them, brilliant. And it 100% changed the way the audience experienced the play. Actually, in, in our production, Addison, Adams, Jefferson, and Franklin were all played by women. And it really um, caused everyone to look at the, the story of America's founding through a different lens. And it was so delightful. And Scott was awesome. So. He was awesome. No surprise I agree. there. <laughs> well, we had, you know, the Milwaukee one had Nate Stampley as Jefferson. So there you go. I mean, the same, yeah. same idea. Yeah. I mean, and it's absolutely right. This is a show that belongs to, to everybody. Oh, I wish I had seen that production. Yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> Julie, what else is on your yeah, list? Yeah, I was, um, speaking of, of potentially creaky, that I think needs um, a little revitalization, and I love it, is The Crucible by Arthur mm. Miller. And um, certainly written for um, the, uh, the McCarthy hearings, you know, a, um, a cloaked play about rabble-rousing and, and persecution um, of innocent people. Uh, I would love to see a new version of that. That can actually absolutely be exactly what you're saying. Can it? Can it be um, instead of a bunch of young children? Can it? Uh, young women? Can it be men? You know, can it be young boys? Does that change things? Does John Proctor? Could John Proctor be a woman? Would that change? I think. I think the idea of this persecution um, and the idea of um, uh, the, this group mob mentality. Um, getting whipped up to harm innocent people is certainly as relevant now as then. And um, yeah, I was thinking, but we we have in our in our mind that this is only something that colleges do, or or places where you've got a lot of young young girl talent. Um, and I think it needs a brushing off. I think it's still. I think it could still hold up in twenty. 
Well, you know, I to that point, I think the and it was controversial and not as successful as his view from a bridge. But I thought the Van Hove uh, production of the Crucible, which really did it focused all the women were dressed up as uh, or or girls were dressed up as schoolgirls in like prep school uniforms. So it was kind of like a cross between uh, Miller and the Children's Hour, and it was creepy and powerful in exactly the ways you're describing. And then there's also. Um, the Milwaukee rep at some point when we ever get back to a full season again, will do John Proctor is a villain um, by the young player at Kimberly Bellflower, which is set in a Georgia, Georgia suburb. And they're studying the crucible <clears throat> with a very charismatic male teacher who, yes, guess what is a, is a harasser and sort of the dealing with that whole issue. It's a powerful play. So you're spot on with, with that. We do need, and it was a great play even then, but it needs that kind of a, an update. Yep. Yeah, I can't wait to see that new one. You know, I've, I've been thinking as well about some of the um, activist political theater, uh, especially, I mean, obviously a long European tradition, but I, I'm focused more on some of the, the American um, pieces. You know, I've always been completely enamored of um, the tales of the federal theater project back during uh, the depression, um, you know, the, the cradle will rock Mark Blitzstein's, you know, political oh, yeah. opera and not just the play itself, but the story around the production of the play, which became a political act in itself, you know, thinking about, um, you know, Heidi Schreck's brilliant, what the constitution means to me, which is now you can stream that on Amazon prime and see her in the original Broadway production. Everybody should be doing that. Um, but I'm also, because it's October <laughs> of 2020, over the last week or two, I've really been having flashbacks to the fall, uh, to October of 2016, when um, in cahoots with the incomparable Colleen Madden, uh, and not as a forward theater production, as a personal project, uh, we produced Mike Daisy's play, The Trump Card, um, which was uh, in the lead up to the election, really looking at the forces uh, in the upbringing and, and life story of the person who is currently our president um, and really painting a picture of um, what we were opening ourselves up to as a country uh, in considering um, electing that individual. And uh, it just, it was, it was a real moment of activism because that playwright, Mike Daisy, actually had developed this as a one-man show for himself but in the months leading up to the election, he basically gave his play to the country and said, anybody who wants to perform this anywhere, go ahead. You know, royalty free. You don't need to ask for permission. Just go do this play. Do it in your communities. Do it anywhere you want to um, and use it as a, an opportunity to provoke conversation. And um, I thought that that was a, a really powerful um, step for him to take and certainly we did it with a cast of six, sort of dividing up the sections of the play and representing different genders and ages and races. And um, it was a really powerful experience to put that together and then to be in an audience, um, you know, and things have turned out <laughs> in all the ways they've turned out. But I, I really, it, 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 was, it was empowering to make that piece of theater in that moment. And I think a lot of people are feeling a similar urge, you know, you think about what Berkeley Rep is doing right now um, with it can't happen here. Um, it, it feels like we're living in a moment where more and more people are creating pieces of activist theater. And I think it's, it's needed. 
I think it says something that well over 100 theaters, I'm proud that Forward is one of them, have co-sponsored uh, It Can't Happen Here. I think in recognizing exactly, Jen, what you're talking about. You know, you mentioning um, Colleen, I can't help but think about a very different play from an earlier time, but how sweet it is right now in this dark and sort of corrosive moment we're in to think back to the American Players Theater 2018 production of Born Yesterday, mm -hmm. which is a wonderful, sweet, uh, very funny uh, play holding out hope in, for an old-fashioned kind of political idealism. I mean, it's sort of the, you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington of the American theater with a feminist twist. And Colleen was, in, you know, Brenda DeVita did an outstanding job, I think, directing it, mm -hmm. had a real, real through vision of what the play should be. And Colleen just killed it. I mean, you know, I've seen, I believe, every single thing that she's done, certainly everything at APT, um, since she moved to Wisconsin. And it's it's definitely in my top 10 of her many, many amazing performances. Yeah. Um, I, we I, had I, great, go ahead, Mike. Go ahead. No, 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 go, go, go. Well, I was just gonna say, uh, you know, literally the night before we were recording this, we got to share, uh, and I won't speak about it for long because we talked about it on our last episode, but I really do think for people who love political plays, reading Char White's play, The True, is a must. Um, both as an examination of local politics uh, and and our history and the role of women in American politics. I just think it's a phenomenal, funny, um, heartfelt, and true play. Um, so people really should be reading that. And, and continuing in that vein in which all politics is local, I can't uh, have a conversation about plays that deal with politics without mentioning um, Ike Holter's Reitland saga of plays, yes. um, which all take place in a fictional ward in Chicago. He's written, I think it's a seven plays yeah. um, that are all um, created happening in this fictitious 51st ward. Um, sometimes the characters overlap. The final play in the series brings together characters from all plays explicitly. But other than that, they're just all kind of existing in the same world. And even though they deal with different topics, I mean, Exit Strategy is about education. We've produced that play here. Um, he's got uh, one about a theater company. He's got others about real estate. I mean, they're, it, it's going all over, but they're all really focused on the fact that what's, what happens politically at the local level has implications for all of us. And those plays are all so smart and so funny. And I just think Ike is such a phenomenal writer. Um, and it's it's exciting to me that he's written all of these plays that weave politics into their very bones. He's got such a, um, I agree with everything you just said. I also think his vision is incredibly dark and the political play in that saga, but, but really all seven of them um, really, really take to the idea that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, which, you know, for me, one of the plays that best captures this, and I have to be honest, this is a play I did not know until I saw it at the Shaw Festival in 2019, is Howard Barker's Victory, uh, which mm. is set in the English Civil War. Um, but the basic gist of it is that, you know, caval whether, whether you're a cavalier or a roundhead, you know, a Cromwellite or a royalist, um, you, you, all you really want is power. The, the actual issues don't matter. Um, and behind the scenes, number one, bankers control everything. And number two, women get screwed six ways of Sunday. It's a dark, dark play, which holds out very little hope. And I don't think Holter holds out very little, uh, very much hope. 
um, that we're going to come to to a brighter day. I mean, I sure hope on that level, at least, both of these brilliant playwrights are wrong. Mm. Yeah, indeed. Well, you know, uh, politics is very much um, a, a theme that we want to be idealistic about, but but we all need to understand it's not pretty how things get done. You know, it, it truly is that how the sausage gets made metaphor. Um, and I, I'm a big fan of, of plays that take that on honestly, um, because sometimes I think as Americans, our idealism gets in the way of progress um, and our desire for things to be perfect and exactly the way we want them and for our people to be exemplary. Um, it gets in the way, it, it takes compromise, it's messy, um, but that's how, but that's how progress gets made. And, and, you know, we probably should start to wrap up this conversation, but <laughs> I do feel like Robert Jenkins plays about LBJ, um, should be mm-hmm. at least mentioned. Um, cause I think they exemplify that you see the sausage getting made in those plays and it is messy and looking at, you know, a play like the great society and yeah, he's racist and he's also getting the voting rights act bill passed. You know, and it's it's all of that complication that really is so essential to the American story. Um, Julie, you've got something. I, well, I was just going to say, and there's something um, for me um, that I feel more positive and more optimistic going back and looking at these plays that were written. I mean, we started with Shakespeare <laughs> and we've gone all the way up to modern time, that there have always been issues. Um, we have new issues right now to us, but there's always been something. The the way the sausage gets made, the, the problems that that have always been with us. And and to see to see how they are relevant right now or not relevant, because that was an issue of then we have our own now, is um, I don't know, there's something, there's something hopeful about that, the progress of of humankind. Um, That is helpful to me. Julie, we're talking about politics and you somehow just brought us to hope. I really think we need to stop the conversation right there. Um, So I'm going to say that that is all for this episode of Theater Forward, a conversation about theater in Wisconsin, the Midwest, and America. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jen Uphoff-Gray. I'm Julie Swenson. And I'm Mike Fisher. Our podcast is produced by Scott Hayden, who I'm still kicking myself as we sit here that I did not get to see play Abigail Adams. (laughs) Uh, Hopefully, since we're talking about hope, there'll be a chance for me to do so sometime in the future. Um, And hopefully, since we're talking about hope, you will follow us or share your thoughts on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Um, As always, that's at Theater Forward. As always, that is with an ER. And that's not hope, folks. That is that. (laughs) (laughs) And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you might tune in. And be sure to leave a review. We're so grateful to have you listening. And we'll be back soon for another Theater Forward conversation.